We are in week two of a new sermon series that we're calling Storied. Um, the sermon series slide will be there any moment. Storied, which is really about looking at God's Word, the Bible, as a grand story, an epic story that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation, but is going on all the time and that we find ourselves in the middle of it. And what we want to do in, in seeing this is understand that this is a king and his kingdom story. It's not just a, a fairy tale. It's not, not a made-up story. This is a true story or story of truth, uh, if you want to say it that way, because there are places where there are fiction in the Bible, believe it or not. It's really awesome. I love fiction, and so I'm excited that fiction is included in the Bible. But we're not going to talk about fiction today. Uh, it is a true story. Fiction can be true as well. You guys understand that? That if there's fiction, fiction communicates truth. So it's okay. There's all truth in God's Word. So Genesis to Revelation, one big story about the King, the King God, and His kingdom. And today we're going to take another theme out of that. Last week we looked at how uh, there is a King, there is a God, and I am not Him. And so the question that the Bible is always asking you and asking me is, there's a King, what are you going to do with him? You know, and, and the story of Genesis is how people rebelled against that king and set up their own kingdom, and it went really, really bad for them and for us. We live in this alternative kingdom now where we're constantly trying to step into God's kingdom, but really living out of our own desires, our own passions, the things that lead us to pain and hurt and to hurt one another, to mess up our planet, all of these things come out of this striving for our own kingdom. Today we're going to look at the context or the setting of this story. Now, if you guys understand about stories, uh, there's many parts to a story. There's a plot, there's characters, there's setting, and without any one of these things, the story kind of loses some, some power, loses some of its meaning. And so we're going to look at the setting of the story, of this grand epic adventure of the king and his kingdom story. The setting in, in this story is two places, actually, heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. Say it with me so you're, I want to wake you up. Say it, heaven and earth. All right, there you go. You are here. Just making sure. Um, we launched right into this thing. So here's the deal. I've got 30 minutes or so to tell you about heaven and earth in the context of this king and his kingdom story, and on top of that, to bring you a fresh word of revelation from God today. Like, this is why we're here, right? We're not just here to hear a good teaching. We're not just here to get more information. We want to encounter God. And so I got about 30 minutes to do that. Good luck, right? Good luck. Challenge accepted. So here it is, king and his kingdom story, setting of heaven and earth. Here's the reason why uh, setting is so important. And I want to illustrate why setting is so important by telling you a story, okay? And I thought back through all the stories I've ever taught, probably, probably every story I've ever taught. And I thought through all the stories that I've ever told as a pastor, and I thought, I don't know that I've ever told this one. So I found a fresh one for you. So it happened when I was a, a kid growing up in Alaska, probably about middle school, high school age, we would go in the summers to fish for king salmon on the banks of the mighty Kenai River. Mountains in the background. It is absolutely gorgeous, except for the mosquitoes. And my whole family is there, and we're fishing for salmon. Boom. You see what I just did there? You guys all have a place, right? You all understand where this story takes place. You have an image. You have a setting for the story to take place. Now, I could go anywhere. See, there it is, the mighty Kenai River. I could go anywhere with this story. I mean, I could take you, then, and then we decided to leave and go to Mexico. And then, because it was cold and mosquitoey, or I could say that, and there's what actually happened, that we were fishing and a wood duck began floating downstream. Here's a picture of a wood duck. A wood duck floated past us. And my dad says, look, it's a wood duck. And my mom says, wow, it's so lifelike. 
really happened. That is not just a joke I pulled off the internet. That really happened. So heaven and earth, like the Kenai River in this story, are the setting of God's grand, epic adventure of the king and his kingdom story. It's where we find ourselves is where we find God, <clears throat> find God working. One of the questions that a lot of people like to ask about Christianity is, is about heaven, right? We, we want to know what heaven is going to be like. When will I get there? When, when, you know, when I do get there, is St. Peter really going to be standing at the pearly gates? Like, is he, am I going to walk up on a rabbi and a priest and an imam and St. Peter and this moment that they have and it's a big joke? And is that what's really going to happen? Am I really going to cross through some gates that are made out of literal pearl and get into heaven and there's glassy seas and uh, there's like mansions made of gold and streets? And is that really what heaven's going to be like? Is it really going to be like the good place? The good place where everybody's really nice all the time and nobody says anything mean to each other and it's impossible to cuss? Is that what heaven is really going to be like? Unfortunately, the Bible actually doesn't talk as much about heaven in the afterlife as we think it does, or as much as we really want it to, right? We really want all these answers about what's going to happen after I die. What's going to happen when I finally breathe that last breath? The Bible, though, isn't an insurance policy against the fires of hell someday, okay? That is not what the story of the Bible is about at all. It's an epic story of a king and his kingdom. So when the Bible talks about heaven, it's speaking about God's context, God's setting, God's place of being. Heaven in the Bible is is the place where God's kingdom exists perfectly, where his rule and reign are never challenged or questioned, where, where everything that is as it should be, as God intended it to be. This is heaven in the Bible. There's a bunch of pseudonyms um, you know those, those names like when, when, a, when a terrorist comes around, he like changes his name a bunch of times? Well, in the Bible, heaven actually gets a whole bunch of different names, a whole bunch of different ways of calling it what it is. And here's just a few of them. And these, I mean, literally, these are just a few. It's going to sound like an exhaustive list, but it's not. You ready? It goes like this. Father's house, paradise, the eternal kingdom, eternal inheritance. I like this one from Hebrews, the better country. A new Jerusalem, the kingdom of heaven, Eden, and another one of my favorites, our great Sabbath rest. That is what the Bible describes as the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is the half of the context of this great big story of the whole Bible, and that's the story, that's the context that God lives and rules and reigns in. Now, the other half of this context is three people, earth, earth. Now, earth is uh, one that we're really familiar with, right? It's, it's our context. It's our setting. It's where we live. When we talk about heaven, it's, we're, we're forced to talk about earth. We can't talk about one without the other. And that's why that question of what's heaven going to be like is really hard to answer. Because we use imagery from earth to explain heaven. Earth is our context. It's where we live. It's the space that God created for humans to flourish and thrive and survive and to make, you know, children and to make crops and to have fun and to to dive into the water off of a rope swing and to love one another and to serve one another. This is the context that God has created for us to live and to thrive and flourish in. Earth is our context. When you read Bible stories, 
they're rooted in various earth settings, okay? But it's one big setting, global setting for all of us. So now, in the, in the, in the Old Testament, you have places like Eden and Egypt and Gath and Ashdod and Jericho and Nineveh and Jerusalem and Galilee and Rome. And hopefully, as you read these stories, you will start to hear places like Pullman and like Apartment Land and like Colfax and like that town that Doug lives in, the, the name just went, whew, Indicott, there it is. I knew I'd find it eventually. It was in there. You'll start to hear contexts like, like, like India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. You'll hear other contexts, the steadings of this story of the king and his kingdom where heaven is coming and enter into, entering into the context of earth. For lack of a better way of explaining it, you have to understand it this way. Heaven and earth in the Bible look like two places. We got, I think there's a picture of two big circles like separated out here. Okay, there you go. You got the context of heaven and the context of earth. Now we understand them separately. We understand God's living here and we're living here. But throughout the Bible, heaven and earth are like two dimensions. It's like a sci-fi adventure, right? Two dimensions, two planes of existence that are separate. And most of the time throughout the Bible, they actually are overlapping, which looks like this. I think we got a picture of an overlap. There we go. Heaven and earth overlap. Without God's help and assistance, we can't get from one plane of existence to the other. We can't cross over to the other side into God's existence. We live solely in earth, but heaven is constantly overlapping. And that's what the picture of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is. Eden, this place of perfect unity of heaven and earth together, where God is walking with man, and man is seeing God face to face. It's innocent and unbroken and unmarred by pain and suffering. And then, as you know what happens in the story, when man rebels against God's kingdom, it fractures something. It fractures our ability to enter into the kingdom of heaven, to walk with God. And yet, those two contexts remain overlapped. We just can't see from one to the other. Then there's this whole story, like, oh, tons and tons of pages, and you come to all the way to the end of the Bible, and we come to Revelations chapter 20. And it's the end of things. And guess what? We get this picture, again, just like in Genesis 1, we get a picture of heaven and earth overlapping perfectly. Here's what it says. I want to read this to you. Genesis chapter 20, verse 3 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, So God is speaking this. For the king from his throne says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Heaven and earth have now overlapped. It goes on to talk about there's no pain, no suffering, no tears, no sorrow. All that is broken in this world, all that is wrong is restored and made perfect. It's coming together as one. Heaven and earth are overlapping. The Bible starts with it and ends with it, but there's a lot that happens in the middle, right? We live in the middle. We live in this place where heaven and earth don't feel like they're overlapping. If you have eyes at all, I mean, most of you do. You have eyes in your head or ears in your, in your, ears in your hearing? Something, I don't know. That was coming out weird. I got it anyway. If you got ears, if you got eyes, and you look around at your neighborhood, you will see just how not like the kingdom of heaven things are here on earth, right? You look around, you talk about your family, you talk about your neighbors, you think about what's going on, all the hurt and strife. You think, how is this, Heidi and I said this, how does society even survive, right? We're just such a mess. All of our collective stuff is just such a mess. How do we even survive? 
And yet God is saying, this is where this king and kingdom story is going. It starts here in Genesis. It's broken apart. I know you can't see it, but guess what? We're moving toward this place where heaven and earth are united and they come together. I want to take one story out of the bigger story to kind of illustrate how this works. Genesis chapter 28. It's on page 13 in your blue Bible, if you have it. Um, It's on page 18 in my brown Bible. I don't know what page it is on your Bible that you might have or what screen it is on your phone, but go ahead and open that up there. I want to give you a little bit of context. So following the break of human history, right? Following the break between God and man, history begins to take a course. Earth begins to crumble. We see every type of relationship. The relationship between husband and wife is fractured. The relationship between parents and children is broken. The relationship between two brothers is broken. One kills the other. Then we move on and we see how people are seeking their own way no matter what it costs them. They're abusing one another. They're hurting one another. They're causing wars. They're causing famines, all kinds of stuff. They're destroying the land. We have Noah's Ark happen. God intervenes into the midst of that. And then we see people building towers to the sky, trying to be like God. And we come all the way to this place where God has just let people do what they want to do, destroying everything. But then he decides to intervene. And he speaks to a man named Abram. And he says, Abram, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. I will bless you. You will be a blessing to the kingdoms of the world. And that blessing is following through until we come from Abraham to his son Isaac, and from his son Isaac to his son Jacob. And Jacob is the one we're going to talk about. Now, Jacob is an interesting character in the Bible. Now, if I was to write the Bible, this would not be a hero I would put in it, okay? When people, like all from this point forward in the Bible, people say when they refer to God, and when God refers to himself, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? Abraham was not a great guy. Isaac was not a great guy, and Jacob is the worst of the lot. He is, from birth, a complete jerk, Okay, let's just be really honest about it. But he was one of two twins. His brother, who was a hairy mess, came out first, and they said, wow, he's hairy, so we're going to name him Esau. When my children were born, we didn't say that. I don't know why, but that's what they said. Esau means hairy one, right? So he comes out, and he's hairy. The hairy one did it. And so he comes out, but then his brother Jacob is right on his heels, literally. He is reaching and has a hand on this kid's, this other baby's heel, and he's holding on to him as he's coming out. Now, that's a horrible birth image right there in your mind, isn't it? I mean, you're all like, oh, gosh, stop talking. And as he comes out like that, his dad looks at him and he says, his name's going to be Jacob, because Jacob means grabber. It means thief. It eventually means liar, okay? It means grabbing, lying thief. Grabs a hold of him and he comes out this way. And that's exactly what his whole life is exemplified by. If you read the stories in Genesis 26, 27, and 28, it was what you read is story after story of Jacob making a mess of things. Jacob tra- tra- taking his, his older brother is supposed to have the birthright of the family, inherit everything, or inherit three quarters of everything. And Jacob comes, or Esau comes home hungry from a hunt one day, and Jacob says, hey, if you want to eat, you'll give me your birthright. I am convinced that this was junior high. Right? The frontal cortex isn't working. They're not making clear decisions. And he says, I will give you food. Here's a candy bar for your part of the wealth, of all of dad's wealth. And he steals it from him, basically. And then later, when their dad is about to die, he's, the dad's going to give him a blessing. And he blesses the older son first, and it's a special blessing from God. And God's supposed to carry this blessing on through, uh, through, through Esau. And, and Jacob sneaks in. He puts a hairy coat on, 
and he rubs himself with animal smells. He gets up with a sheep and smells smelly, and he sneaks into his dad's tent. His dad's blind, can't see, and he goes, oh, I smell Esau. And he blesses him with the blessing that's supposed to be Esau's. He, like, steals it. And it's not just Jacob doing all this. His mom. His mom is a manipulator, okay? How many have manipulated? Don't raise your hand because your mom might be here, but if your mom's a little manipulative or your mother-in-law is a little manipulative, right? She's manipulating Jacob to do all this, to, to elevate himself, to get all the wealth and all the power. And it's even worse. For Jacob, his dad doesn't love him. His dad loves his brother. So he's in this mess of a family. He's got this promise from God. In fact, when they're born, God actually says that the older will serve the younger and the blessing will come through Jacob. But he can't sit still and wait for God to do his thing. No, he has to to get that birthright. He has to get the wealth. He has to get the position and the power and authority. And he is fighting and scrabbling and lying and cheating and stealing to get it. This is the biblical hero, Jacob, right? What a great guy. Now his brother is, his dad is dying and his brother is literally ready to kill him. He says, as soon as dad dies, you're dead. And Jacob goes to his mom and says, mommy, what am I going to do? And mommy says, this is I mean, literally how this story goes. She says, you're going to have to run, you're going to have to escape town. Go out of town until all this blows over and then you can come back. And so he decides to go to his uncle in this town called Haran. It's 550 miles away from his house. And this is where we're going to pick it up in verse 10, if you're with me. And I'm going to read this to you. It's two days out from home, running for his life, running from the mess he's made. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place. Underline that or circle it, highlight it, whatever you need to do, a certain place. This is an important word. And stay there, and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he didn't have anything with him, okay? He was just running for his life. He had nothing but the coat on his back. So he's using a rock for a pillow. He puts a a stone under his head, and he laid down in that place to sleep. Verse 12, and he dreamed, and behold. You guys remember the word behold? We've talked about this before. Behold in the Bible means stand in awe and wonder. Like this is meant to slap you in the face, get your attention. Oh my goodness, what happens? Behold. There was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, again, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offsprings. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And you and your offspring shall all, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, and it's all over in here. Stand in awe and wonder. I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So the setting of the story is in earth, in the desert, about two days' journey from Jacob's house. But here we see heaven breaking into earth, 
earth and heaven overlapping, heaven invading, coming into our contexts. There are two things that I want to draw out from this text this morning. And the first one, I got to be honest, I've I've really had a hard time putting this into actual words. The more I pondered it, the more difficult it became. I think there's some things that are difficult to explain with human words. So I, I put it this way. Behold, again, stand in awe and wonder, the incredible mercy of God. We see in this story Jacob running for his life. Running from the mess he's made, the mess he's been implicit in making. He's running from his lies. He's running from the spin that he's, he's done trying to make it look good, trying to get his way, trying to build his kingdom. And he's destroyed his family. He's trampled on his friends. He's really trampled on any sort of relationship he had or, or could imagine having with God. In fact, at no point in any of his story do you ever see Jacob until this moment saying anything about God. He's just busy working on his own stuff. He's thinking he's going to be gone just a few days until the consequences blow over, until his brother's not mad anymore. And he has no idea he's about to be gone for 20 years from his home. But here's the thing. God is going to get him. God is coming after Jacob. And we don't say that in a way like, God is going to grab you and throw you into the gates of hell. Heaven is going to break in to Jacob's story and rescue him. So a couple days into this journey, he comes to a certain place. It's a nowhere place. He lies down to go to sleep on a rock with nothing. He's got nothing to offer, nothing to bring. He is just hurt and pain and loss, and he's running, and God shows up. This story isn't like the prodigal son story. You guys remember the prodigal son story? We were talking about this at our house yesterday. Who's the prodigal son? And Jesus tells this beautiful story about a son and his father. The son comes to the father and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. How rude is that, right? And dad says, okay, if you want your money, here you go. And he gives him his half of wealth or however much it is. And the son runs and he spends it on high living, right? He's, he's at the gambling tables. He's blowing it. He's, he's spending it on women, wine, and song. He's bringing in the latest rock band and he's having concerts and private parties and driving Ferraris and Lamborghinis. And he runs himself into debt and eventually all the money's gone and he ends up having to work at 7-Eleven. And he's nothing wrong with working at 7-Eleven, but it's way different than what it used to be. And after a while, 7-Eleven's like, we're not paying you to work here. And then he's working, he's taking care of pigs. And then he doesn't even have money to eat. He's not getting paid enough. So he's like, well, I'm eating what the pigs are eating. Like, he's gone from the top to the bottom. And in that moment, when he is at the bottom, when he has run from all the things that he has done, when he has run out of all the wealth and support and power that he ever had, he is at the very bottom of his rope, the end of the, the, end of the rope, the bottom of the well. And at that moment, he says, I'm going to go home to my father. Because being a servant in his house is way better than this mess. And we have this beautiful image of God the Father running to the son in his mess and accepting him with loving arms. But this isn't the prodigal son. Jacob is not turning to God. He's just running. Jacob isn't looking for the kingdom of heaven to come and rescue him. He's running away from it. He's in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his hurt and his struggle and his striving and his grasping. He's just running. He's not looking for God, but God still gets him. Jacob goes to sleep on that rock in the middle of nowhere, and then there's a dream, and in the dream he sees a ladder. That word ladder in the Hebrew is really complicated, but it's like, it's like a ramp 
It's like a big earthen ramp, maybe, like if you were to, to assail a castle. Yeah, I just used a big word, assail. If you were to attack a castle, you'd build a ramp up over the walls. It's like this big ramp up over the walls. It's, it's a stairway, but not to heaven. It's a stairway from heaven. I know, they got the song all wrong. They built this, God builds a ramp, a ladder into Jacob's circumstances, into his pain, into his hurt. In the ancient Near East, all of the pagan religions, they built up to God. That's what they did. They built the stairway to heaven. They would build their altars on high places to worship their gods. We have the story of the Tower of Babel. We're going to build a city to God and then become like him. We're going to build up. But in this story, it's all flipped on its head. God builds a ramp down to earth. God builds a, 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 an unassailable, unremovable massive ramp from heaven to earth, and he's coming into the story of Jacob. And that is what makes the Christian God so different from every other little g-god of this world. Jacob didn't do anything to get God to come to him. He couldn't build a ladder to God. In fact, he's not interested in God. Most of the time, if he's talking about God at all, he's telling God what he's going to do. He's telling God how it's going to be. And here, God stands and speaks to Jacob, and he speaks to this massive promise. In fact, it's nine promises, little promises, and this one big promise. And he speaks to Jacob. He's like, I am going to bless you, your whole family. He's single at this point, okay? He's single. He says, you're going to have this massive family that goes to all the corners of the world. Right now, you've got nothing. You've got a rock that you're laying your head on. You've got nothing but hurt and a trail of pain and suffering behind you. You've got nothing but a mess that you've left behind, but I am going to bless you. I am going to follow you. And this is the biggest part of it all. He says, and I will not leave you until I've accomplished this. I will not leave you. It's a huge promise. The God of the universe, heaven coming to earth, and he just makes this promise. And there's no conditions. There's no strings attached. Just this huge statement of mercy and grace from the king. He's like, you know what? You've been rebelling. You've been in open rebellion against my kingdom, but my kingdom is coming to you whether you like it or not. My kingdom is coming to you whether you're ready or not. My kingdom's coming after you, and the world is going to be blessed through you, and I will not leave you. This is the mercy and grace of God that I want you to ponder for a moment. God is seeking you. You may be here this morning because your, your, your husband or wife drug you here, or you thought it was a good idea, you're struggling in life, and maybe I need to come to church. You're looking for a, a way to feel better or to make life a little bit better. I, I don't know why you're here. You, you're acting out of, out of your family history, or your, your parents drug you along. All of these things, we, we all come from different places. But I want you to know that God is coming for you. God is looking for you. And it doesn't matter if you're like, I've been following Jesus since I was eight years old and I'm now 65. God is looking and seeking and building a stairway from heaven to you, heaven and earth coming together because God loves humans. God loves people. He doesn't see us as slaves. He doesn't see us as workers for his kingdom. He sees us as people that he created and that he loves and that he wants to have as part of his kingdom. So God just simply loves us so much 
and that there is nothing that you or I can do to change that. And he is taking all of the initiative, all of the effort to come to you, whether you are seeking him or not. And it is sheer and utter grace. I don't know why you're here, but God's going to get you. God's coming to you. It may take a little while. You may come and sit in this, these seats for years. You may, may preach sermons for years like I do. God is coming. And there's nothing you can do to earn it. You don't deserve it. And there's nothing that you will ever do that will prevent it. God is coming to you. Heaven and earth colliding. And the beautiful thing is that God always begins right where we are. That leads me to the second point. And the first one is just massive. Just ponder that for a minute. If you do nothing else today, take some time to ponder God's mercy. Take some time to, like, you think about the cross. The cross is the next example of that, God's mercy. We didn't, we didn't ask Jesus to die on a cross so that we could, heaven and earth could unite. He just did it anyway. Thieves are spitting on him. People are taking his clothes or abusing him in every way. And it's sheer grace. It is all for us, and it is sheer grace. Just ponder that. The second thing I want to draw out of this text before we're done is that heaven and earth are colliding all through the Scripture in extremely ordinary places. It's not special. We have this idea that heaven comes to earth at church, right? Heaven, we come to church, we have this worship experience, and God shows up, and heaven and earth collide, and then when I go to work tomorrow, it's like back into earth, right? We go back to earth, and God goes back to heaven, and then he, we do my thing, and he does his thing, and then I come back to church, and I take communion, and heaven and earth come back together. I mean, how great of a picture is communion of heaven and earth coming together. But this is not how it works. God keeps showing up throughout the Bible in extremely ordinary places, Jacob comes to a certain place. That's why that word is so important in this text. It's, a certain, it's nowhere. It is literally probably somewhere in a desert. There is nothing around but rocks. There's no sticks. There's no twigs. It's just an open. It looks like the moon. There's nothing special about this place. It's less than special. It's kind of awful. It's an ordinary place. It's in a field or a sand dune. I mean, this is Pullman. It's Pullman. You could write this story. It says, and he came to Pullman. Nowhere. And God shows up. There's not much going on there, but God comes to him there. It's not just the location that's ordinary either. It's his circumstances. It's all of that pain and mess, all that stuff he's carrying. He's, he's fearful for his life. He probably feels guilty. He's carrying the weight of his family, his dad not liking him, his mom manipulating him. It's just, he's just, he is in an Eeyore place, right? He's in, you guys know what I'm talking about. I'm so sad and lonely. He's in this melancholy place, and he's there, and he's lying on a rock, and God shows up. Not only is Jacob shocked, but we're meant to be shocked. We're meant to be just gobsmacked. That's why I keep saying, behold, behold. It's like somebody just peppered behold into this text. Behold, behold, behold. Stand in awe and wonder. Be shocked. God showed up in the most ordinary place. And Jacob has this, he's like, how awesome is this place? 
This is, this is none other than the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord, that is where God lives and rules and reigns in one spot, right? That's the temple image we have later in, 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 in where? Kings. There we go. In the later books of the Bible, we have a temple where God comes down and meets with people. This is the house of the Lord. And he says, he looks around and he's like, I see rocks, I see dirt, but this is the house of the Lord. How many of you guys know Sister Wendy Beckett? Heidi does. Good job. I'll introduce you to her. I have before, but you've forgotten, and that's okay. I can't expect you to remember everything. Um, Sister Wendy Beckett is this really funny-looking little woman, and she's a nun. She's got horrible buck teeth. She's, like, she's, like, she's so old, I think she did, they, like, braces didn't exist yet. So she's, and she talks with a really funny accent, and she's British, and she's really hard to understand, and she loves art. She absolutely loves art. And so she has these television shows on PBS that you can watch or go rent. And she goes and she looks at the art houses of Europe and different places like that. And she stands there in her little nun habit. And she tells you all about this artwork. But Sister Wendy, and she, it's, sometimes it's really creepy, I'll tell you. When she starts looking at the naked pictures in the Louvre and stuff, and you have a little nun talking about the factuality of the picture, it's just kind of weird. But Sister Wendy is really brilliant. She says this. She says, God is coming at us all the time. We just fail to see it. And she looks at art and she says, God is coming at us through art. God is coming at us through songs. God is coming at us in our work. And we just fail to see it. We look around and we just see normal life, but heaven is breaking into earth in the ordinary spaces of life, and we just don't see it. Thomas Merton, another Catholic, he's a Catholic monk, he used to say this, every moment of every event in every person's life. Now, you know how many times I said every? Every moment, so 24-7, every event, everything that happens to you in your whole day, of every person, all of you, of every life, what? <laughs> every moment of every event in every person's life plants something in his soul. Just as the wind carries seeds, so each moment carries with it germs of heaven. Heaven is coming at every moment. It's, it's blowing on the winds. It's in the most ordinary places. It's in your bathroom. How many times, I mean, I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, I was in the bathroom praying. Why? Introverts, come on. We escape to the bathroom to get away from people. I think it's because we're silent and still long enough to actually hear from God. And so God's like, all right, bathroom it is. Talk to you in the bathroom. You're in the bathroom and God is speaking to you. Heaven is coming to earth on the toilet seat. It's insane. And it's not just in the bathroom. It's in your car when you're stuck in traffic on Grand Avenue. It's five o'clock and you just want to get to Safeway and it's going to take you 10 minutes. And you're angry and you're upset, but God is coming to you in the middle of that space. He's speaking to us all the time. He's been speaking to Jacob his whole life, but Jacob hasn't seen it. And he comes to this extremely ordinary place, and there it is. God is there, and it's how it is with us too. There's a poet, and he wrote this, and I just love this phrase. He says, the earth is crammed with heaven. Heaven and earth are our separate contexts, but heaven is crammed into the earth. It is all around us. God is here. He's not off someplace far. He doesn't have to be, you don't have to work to get to him. He's here. 
He's built a bridge to our world. He's bringing his kingdom to us here and now. It's what happens in the book of John chapter 1 when Jesus says to Nathaniel, this is one of my favorite stories, and we preached on this not very long ago. Nathaniel is sitting there and Jesus says, hey, I saw you when you were under the tree. It's like this weird prophetic word. And Nathaniel's like, that's crazy. How, you surely, you're the son of God if you saw me in my backyard reading the Bible. And Jesus says, you think that's something? That's nothing. And here's what he says. He says, surely you will see the heavens open and the angels of heaven ascending and descending on the son of man. Jesus is the bridge. Jesus is the ladder to heaven. The son of, do you guys see that picture? In Jacob, he sees the ladder. Jesus says, I'm the ladder. I've come here and now. I am the bridge. I am here. I'm not up there. I'm here. He's filled the earth with the presence and glory of God. Heaven is always invading earth, but we miss it. Just like the people in Jesus' day. They missed who he was. They saw the miracles. They liked the miracles. Good show. They liked the teaching. Hey, that's really profound teaching. But they, they missed it. They were busy doing their own stuff, busy building their own kingdom. They didn't stop long enough to see what God was up to. And they did not say, surely, this is the house of God. God is in this place. Heaven was touching earth. They thought that was only reserved for the Ark of the Covenant. They thought that was reserved for the temple. And then Jesus is out in the streets. Jesus is in the ordinary places. Jesus is in the, the home of, 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 of people who have been broken and sinned and stolen and lied and cheated. Jesus is out touching people who nobody else would touch. Lepers, people who are so sick that you didn't touch them because you were going to die. And Jesus is in those ordinary, extraordinarily awful places. Heaven touching earth. Heaven touched earth and they didn't even know it. So my question for you this morning is this. How is heaven coming to you? How is heaven coming to you? In the middle of your ordinary circumstances, how is God coming? To, I mean, this is incredible mercy. I mean, you don't deserve it. You can't earn it. It's not like you just, you're such a great person that heaven came to you. It doesn't work that way. It's coming no matter what. How is heaven coming to you? I've been asking that kind of lately. How is heaven coming to me? How is God coming to me in the midst of our circumstances? And what I've found is that the more I've been asking that question, the more I'm hearing from God, you need to stop and listen. Stop long enough to listen. Stop by and trying to be so busy managing life and work that you can't ask the question, how is God coming? So one of the primary practices we've been teaching over the last year and a half has been listening, stopping and listening to God to discern what he's up to. Some of us don't stop and listen because we don't want to hear. You know who you are. You're so busy like working the spin, trying to cover up the past, cover up the pain, cover up the hurt. You don't want to hear. It's more comfortable living in the pain of your past than hearing from God, experiencing his presence, and having to change to walk in the new family of God. It's easier to be miserable than allow God to birth something new in you. And you might be saying, wow, that sounds like experience up there, Pastor Jamie. And I will say, yes, it is easier to stay in the pain than to move on and let God birth something new. So we just stay there. How does God come to us? God comes to us all sorts of ways. We can say, Truly, God is in this place, and I was not aware of it. 
When we read Scripture, God comes to us. I mean, this is a given. All through the Bible, God is coming to the people of the Bible, and God is speaking to you through those stories. God is coming to you, though, into your context. His king and kingdom story is inviting you to live your story within his. It happens in worship. Music bridges the gap between left brain and right brain. It brings our emotions to bear with our, our, our logical mind, and we connect in such a way that heaven opens up in our minds and in our hearts, and we engage God in worship. It's not just singing songs, ladies and gentlemen. That's why I'm like, hey, lift up your hands. Hey, move your bodies. Open your voices. Lift your, because God is here in that moment. He is here in this place. God speaks through people. He speaks through wise counsel. How many of you guys like wise counsel? Like wise counsel. He also speaks through unwise people. Serious. I know it's scary. God speaks to me and he's been speaking through me for some time now. God sometimes speaks through unwise counsel. God speaks to us in the Bible. God speaks to people through animals. He speaks to this, the prophet through a donkey. God is speaking to Heidi and I through our dog Dexter all the time. I'm telling you, you, like, you come home and he's like, oh, I just love you. And we look at him and you go, am I like that with God when he shows up? Do I just have this just awe of the presence of the... He didn't do anything. He just showed up. He just showed up and I just, he just loves us. We're like, I feel sad. Guess what Dexter does? He jumps in your lap and he looks at you with these eyes like you are the greatest thing in the whole world. God speaks to us through Dexter all the time. It's really weird. Come to our house. God will speak to you through Dexter. God speaks to us through Christians. He speaks to us through non-Christians, atheists, people who hate God. He speaks to us through science. He speaks to us in the bathroom. He speaks to us as long as we will listen and to whatever we are listening to, God will speak to you if you will open your heart and your mind to be listened. Counseling. Counseling can be holy ground. It can be the most sacred space and your counselor could not know God. I'm serious. Any place that you do work with the Lord, God is showing up at all these times. How about hard stuff? Anxiety. God is coming to you through your body. Pain, disappointment, mental collapse, sickness, abandonment, loss of a job, all of these things feel like you're at the gates of hell, but you are at the gates of heaven because heaven is coming to earth in your circumstances. We see things that seem unimportant or seem so important that God couldn't do anything about it, they're just so awful, and yet they are the space where God's ramp is coming to you. In between places, you're in between jobs, you're in between houses, you're in between transitions. In between places are so important to us because God's birthing and speaking something new in you in those places. In between relationships, in between works of the Holy Spirit in your heart and in your mind. These are the places where God is birthing new things in you. So let's do this. And the closing. We're going to take a moment to, to sit in silence to remove the clutter of my voice and to allow the Spirit to speak to you. And here's what I want us to do. It's an ancient spiritual practice. And what we're going to do, we're going to engage our prophetic imagination. Okay? This is, we're going to engage our mind to see what's truly happening. You are sitting in your seat, and next to you is Jesus. You're going to close your eyes, and in your mind's eye, you're going to see that seat next to you is empty. And you're going to turn and you're going to look at Jesus. What's the first word out of his mouth? How is Jesus coming to you? What is he saying to you? 
We're going to give one minute, and then at the end of that minute, we're going to sing a song and respond to what Jesus is saying. So, Father, your servants are listening. We want to hear from you this morning. In the midst of our circumstances and our pain, God, some of us are here for all sorts of reasons. Some of us don't even want to be here. Some of us think the pastors talk way too long, and they're right. But you're speaking in this moment, and so we want to be attentive and listen to you. So speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. When Jesus um, started his ministry on earth, the words um, in several of the Gospels actually said this, and it says, From that point forward, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his core message. There is a king. This is his kingdom. His kingdom is coming. It's at hand. If you've heard from the Lord this morning, and if you haven't heard from the Lord this morning, his kingdom is at hand. And he's calling us to repent and turn our hearts and our minds back to his kingdom. And so that's what this song is an invitation to do this morning. And I just want you to, in your mind and in your heart, create an altar. Um, this is what Jacob's response was. He set up a rock and he said, surely the Lord is in this place. The Lord is in this place. Would you stand with me? We're going to close by singing the doxology. And if you want to come down to the front, you're welcome to, but wherever you're at, let's make an altar to the Lord, a space that says, God is in this place. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above. Father, Son, and 
He's here, so let's praise Him. Praise God from all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly Spirit is in this place. Heaven is in earth. And I don't want you to walk away without having done business with God. He is coming to you in the midst of all of your stuff. And if you're here this morning and you're like, I didn't even know God was interested in me. I want you to know this, that Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine. And there are people in this church that do too. Hattie and I love you deeply. And so we say, go in the grace of our Lord to experience heaven on earth everywhere you go, in every circumstance, in every place, to have eyes wide open, to have your face lifted and God's face shining upon you. May he bless you and keep you as you go. Bear his kingdom wherever you go. In Jesus' name, amen. This is still a place of prayer. If you want to come forward and pray or be prayed for, we have some extra prayer in the back space. Otherwise, happy St. Patrick's Day.